Okay, Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30. If you want to turn there and then we'll pray and we'll, uh, we'll get started. In fact, why don't, I, why don't I read through the first... Uh, I'm going to read the first 17 verses. We may not get there, but I'll read through the, so we have context. Then we'll pray and then we'll study. Our stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, who take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the protection of Pharaoh, oh sorry, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan, and his envoys reach Harness, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying, fiery serpent. They carry their riches on their backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of Yahweh, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dig up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word tonight, that you would enable us to see, to understand, you would enrich us, that you would bless us, and Lord, ultimately, that you would change us by the same Holy Spirit who in, uh, inspired this text and who indwells us and whom we pray will illuminate it to our hearts. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is a good section, this one. If you've been with us recently, chapters 28 and 29 started a new section after the little apocalypse of Isaiah. 
and he has been talking for two chapters about how uh, Israel has a tendency to trust in other nations and make a covenant with other nations rather than to trust in him. And when there was, at the beginning of chapter 28, a brief illustration of what the northern kingdom of Israel had done with the Assyrians, the bulk of those two chapters had been dealing with a future covenant, that ultimately the Israelites' tendency to make deals with foreign nations, to trust in others, other nations and other gods by implication, we'll talk about that in a moment, but to trust in other nations is something that has plagued them. Most specifically in the book of Isaiah, we saw in chapter 7 and 8 that Ahaz had trusted in the Assyrians to give him protection against the alliance of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel who were trying to overthrow the house of David. But the very Assyrians that he trusted in were ultimately going to be the ones to destroy him. Now we have, at this point in Israel's history, a new king, Hezekiah. Hezekiah is now tempted to trust in the nation of Egypt. In other words, he is about to make the same mistake all over again. And so for the bulk of chapter 28 and 29, the second example that we saw was a future covenant of death. That just like they have done this in the past, so they will do it unto the future. And the final time will be a covenant with Babylon, the ones who have been referred to consistently as the ruthless city and the ruthless ones, and with their leader, who we typically know as the Antichrist. And the result of that covenant of death will be destruction, not just of them, but of the entire world. But ultimately, their enemies will be more finely crushed than they will and God will ultimately redeem Israel. But all of that really is the backdrop to the contemporary issue, which is that he's been dealing with their tendency to trust in other nations, where that will ultimately lead them to. But now we have in chapter 30 the pressing issue for now. King Hezekiah is about to place his trust in Egypt. So let's have a look at chapter 30. Verse 1, Ah, you stubborn children, declares the Lord. That's your woeing to the stubborn children. It is not just an ah, oh my goodness, here we go again, but it's more of a woe, and here is the judgment upon you children because of your stubbornness. And uh, this again, as I've said, is something that they just do again and again and again. According to Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21, Israel was viewed, because of the covenant they had with God, as being the Son of God. We know, of course, Jesus as the Son of God, but Israel was also described as the Son of God. Hence, in Hosea, out of Egypt, I have called my son, referring to the Passover. And so, um, with... Um, with the children here, stubborn again, they are the children of God, but they are stubborn, hard-hearted, um, strong-willed children who will receive consequences for what they've done. And here is the stubbornness scene. They carry out a plan, but not mine. 
what we're going to see, this is, this is a fantastic passage to preach on pastorally. I feel that so much of what we've done in Isaiah, it's kind of like, it's really good stuff and it's really good learning and it's really good for us to grow. But it's not the kind of stuff that you maybe go and preach as a one-off, as a visiting speaker at a church or at a conference or something. But I really think that this is, because there's so much terminology that we're going to see in this passage tonight that is just so appropriate to us in the church today. Because it's so easy for us to say, oh, well, you know, Hezekiah is going to trust in, in, in Egypt rather than in Yahweh. Oh, man, that's just so stupid. Why would he do such a stupid thing? And, and we kind of, we, we tend to have this tendency as, um, to read ourselves into the Bible as the heroes. You know, we're David and David and Goliath. No, we're not. We're the soldiers sitting on the side while David fights Goliath, at best. You know, and God um, consistently is telling us things in Scripture that we miss because we think that we're always the good guys and the heroes. Oh, I wouldn't have rejected Jesus. Oh, I wouldn't have denied Jesus three times. Oh, I wouldn't have done this and that. When the reality is quite probably we would. And here I think we get these very helpful reminders in that if I were to say to you, if I were to say maybe to an average church, which of, which of you would, would, if you were Hezekiah, rebel against Yahweh and turn to Egypt for your, uh, to be your saviour? You'd all go, oh, I wouldn't do that. So let me rephrase it. Which of you would carry out a plan that wasn't, wasn't God's plan? Because I would figure that many of us do that all the time. We make plans. We don't pray in advance. We do things without committing our, our ways to God. We make decisions on the basis of circumstances around us and we rush into decisions without considering what the Word of God has to say about our circumstances and situation. And this is ultimately what their sin is. They're carrying out plans that are different from God's plans. And as we were emphasizing this morning in the service, you only know what God's plans are if you're prepared to read the scriptures plainly and not twist it. And so many people are clueless of God's plans because they're so quick to twist and allegorize the scriptures. And so what they're doing here in this plan is they're making an alliance, but not of my spirit. The idea here is again something that we can relate to. That they're making alliances. We in our lives make alliances constantly. And I don't just mean hanging out with non-Christians. I don't just mean going to work in a non-Christian environment. I mean making alliances. Placing our trust in institutions. Politicians. Political parties. In systems that are in place things that are done a certain way. We, we place our trust in all sorts of things. And we don't think anything of it. Nothing at all. It's just what we do. Well, I kind of try, of course I trust God, you say. But, you know, I also trust this as well. And that's exactly what Israel did. They still worshipped Yahweh, but in worshipping Yahweh, they also chose to worship other gods as well. And so there were alliances made that were not of God's spirit. There was a trust that wasn't in him. And then it says, as a result, 
that they may add sin to sin. Now, there's some debate over what this refers to. Some people think it simply means that, um, you know, they add sin to sin in that they have a plan and they, they make an alliance. So the plan is a sin, and then carrying it out and making the alliance is a sin as well. So I just don't think that's the case. I think most likely here, adding sin to sin is a reference back to Isaiah 7, that with Ahaz... He trusted in another nation. That was a sin. And now in chapter 30 of Isaiah, Hezekiah is doing the same thing. He's adding sin to sin, going back to the same sin as before. And so the stubborn children are carrying out a plan that is distinct from God's plan, that is not the plan of his spirit, not an alliance that he makes. And in doing so, they're returning to their old ways and they are adding sin to their previous sin. Now, the outlining of what this looks like is seen as we progress. Verse 2. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. You, do you feel rebuked as we're going through this? That's what I said. This language is incredibly to the point. They set out down to Egypt. I know what we'll do to resolve our situation. Let's go and get help from Egypt. They're not offering to worship Egypt's gods. They're not, th they're not throwing away their own god. They're simply going to another nation for help. How often do we make such alliances? Thinking that we're not betraying God at all. But what does God say? You do so without asking for my direction. We as Christians, if we are in the habit of making decisions in our day-to-day -day life without praying, then we are living risky lives. And, and those of you who are regulars, you know, I don't think that you're waiting to hear some still small voice in the back of your mind. I don't think that you're going to get some warm, fuzzy feeling assuring you of God's will. The only place that God speaks through is his Bible. But at the same time, God can providentially direct things. And when we seek God's will, we need to go to his word for guidance and we need to pray. Always pray for wisdom to make the right decisions. And when we don't, whose fault is it? And then we go back to God in prayer and say, oh God, you brought this upon me. How often do you think that God's reply is, you brought it on yourself? You leaped without looking. So, they went down to Egypt. Why did they go down? To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. To seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. I think these words here, and again, there's this lovely Hebrew parallelism, poetic parallelism, where you have words that are, that are pretty much saying the same thing. But a different, but the difference is significant. Taking refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, refuge parallels shelter, protection parallels shadow, and Pharaoh obviously parallels Egypt. But the important thing here is simply that in the use of these two parallel phrases, there is protection that is granted, and there is, there is shelter under a shadow. And these are terminologies that are used in the Old Testament to speak of the relationship that God has with Israel and how he looks after them. 
In other words, Isaiah's language is, is deliberately pointing to the fact that Pharaoh is being sought to fulfill a role that is God's alone to fill. And I no doubt the cautions for our own lives are echoing in our minds as well. Therefore, verse 3, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. So notice here the repetition. He repeats the two phrases, protection of Pharaoh, shelter in the shadow of Egypt, from the previous section. But he adds to them these two things. Another parallel, shame and humiliation. They're going for protection, but all they're going to get is shame. They're going for shelter, but all they're going to receive is humiliation. Again and again, they trust outside of God. They turn away from God. And again and again, it ends badly for them. You'd think they'd learn. You'd think that we would learn. Four, verse four, for though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Harnes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them and brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. So it says, though his officials are at Zoan. So the ambassadors for Israel are already there. They're at Zoan and Harnes. These two places are places in Egypt, the northern region by the Nile, and they're where basically Egypt's a huge country, if you know on a map, it's a big country. And the northern edge of Egypt is where they're coming down from Israel to. In other words, they've already gone to the borders. And he says again, the repetition, though they're already there, everyone's going to come to shame. A people that cannot profit them and brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. So the repetition of shame and disgrace slash humiliation that is going to come. And these are people who cannot profit, even though they are already there. Now, that, I think, is a really good five verses. It's very clear on what the sin of Israel is. We're very clear where we are historically. We know what's going on. We, we can see this in the historical books, and we're going to be looking at the outworking of this a little bit later on in a few chapters' time. And so we see what's going on. We see the sin. We see the potential that we all have to do it. And it's a nice section with repetitions and a good bit of structure, and we can see what we're doing. Then we come to verse 6, and it is somewhat strange. First thing to notice is that we have here an oracle of the beasts of the Negev. Now let's unpack this. First things first. Let's start at the back of that phrase and move, move forwards. Move, move, sorry, start at the, at the end of it and move backwards. Probably a better way of putting it. The Negev is in Egypt. It's the Egyptian desert. So this is clearly a reference to Egypt. And uh, Egypt, geographically, is the context of this. It is the desert or the wilderness of Egypt. Secondly, moving backwards, we're told about the beasts. The beasts of Negev. The beasts are animals, right? And yet, there is, an, going back further, an oracle to the beasts of the Egyptian wilderness. 
Now, when we go back through the book of Isaiah, for those of you who've been on this journey on a regular basis, you'll know that there was a huge section where there was oracle after oracle after oracle. Oracle to this nation, oracle to that nation, oracle to this nation, oracle to that nation. And there were these statements that were made, these oracles, these prophecies to these specific nations. And so an oracle is quite a big deal. It's God taking a nation, putting them aside, and saying to that nation, hey, boom, this is what I have to say to you. This is what you should do. This is what's going to happen to you. It's a kind of statement from God. So my point in all of this is simply this, that in the context of Isaiah, you make an oracle to a nation. Why is he making an oracle to the animals that live in a nation? Initially, it seems very strange. But let's have a look. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. We have a repetition of Egypt being unable to profit them. So we know with this repetition that we're still talking about Egypt. Verse 7, Egypt's help is worthless. So we, we see them carrying their riches on the back of donkeys, their treasures on the humps of camels. Who's they? Contextually, that's the officials, that's the ambassadors. We know that they're already there. Where are they? They're in the northern fertile region by the Nile. And they're coming down. Why would they have treasure? Why would they have riches with them? Because they're making a covenant with Egypt. They're basically paying Egypt off. Don't hurt us. Come and protect us. Here's all our wealth and all our riches that you might do that. They're making a deal with Egypt. So what's the deal here? If the ambassadors are in the northern fertile region of the Nile, why are they seen now to be in the wilderness further south? Because if they're going to the north to drop off the riches, they don't need to go to the south. They don't need to go through a land with lions and lionesses, right? So what's going on? Well, those of you who've been with me regularly through Isaiah, some of you have seen much of this in some of the Psalms we've done on the ladies on Wednesday mornings as well, then you'll be familiar with the fact that there are two realms that are, are used symbolically to speak of the unseen realm, most specifically to be seen to speak of the uh, evil creatures of the unseen realm. This was not only something that is kind of distantly removed from this, and I'm just trying to pull it in, but literally three chapters ago, we had a reference to Leviathan, the great sea creature, and how Leviathan was this creature of the sea who is a Satan. And it is, um, and I'm going to turn there because it's important contextually. It said, in that day, that's the day of the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, the Lord, rather, with his hard and great and strong sword, he will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Listen, Isaiah 27 is not saying that Satan will be a sea monster. It's not saying that. Uh, Satan being symbolic of the sea monster is something that was introduced in the book of Job where he was called Leviathan. 
Satan being a serpent is something that is spoken of throughout scripture and the serpent and the sea monster and Leviathan who comes out of the sea is all put together in the book of Revelation which is clearly referring to Satan. So there was no doubt, and we did this, and if you want to go back to the sermon on chapter 27 and verse 1, we did an entire sermon on that one verse because we went through the span of Scripture to show you, to join the dots up for you and show you from Job to Revelation how Satan is referred to as Leviathan and the sea monster and the monster from the sea. And in fact, Isaiah 27 is the central hub of that link because it's the place where he's called both Leviathan and serpent and sea monster. Now, why do I reference all of that? Because we know that the sea is a place that the, that the ancient world used to speak because of the creatures of the sea were so, were so big and scary and dangerous. And because the sea was such a deep and dark place that they really didn't understand, that it was used to be symbolic of the unseen realm, and particularly the demonic beings there, uh, from there. The other place that is used throughout Scripture in that regard is the wilderness. Now, just to say, because the sea and the wilderness are used symbolically to speak of the um, unseen realm, does not mean that every time we see a reference to the sea or a reference to the wilderness that we can allegorize scripture, spiritualize it, and not take it at face value. We know that these realms are used in such a way because there are places, many places, where those areas are used to speak of those things where the symbolism is very clear in a plain reading. So we know to be watching out for it. But that doesn't mean that it's not literal. Okay, But even when it is literal, that doesn't mean there's not a deeper meaning. For example, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, where did he go? To the wilderness. Did he literally go to wilderness? Or is that just symbolic for Jesus going to a place, you know, spiritually speaking, where Satan was tempting him? Really, he was sitting in the corner of his room at home, and Satan came to him and tempted him. But, but spiritually speaking, it was a wilderness, so we're going to call it a wilderness. No, 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 no. The text doesn't allow us to do that. He was literally in the wilderness. But also, that's where Satan came to tempt him, because of the spiritual implications therein. When Jesus is there upon the sea and the storm is brewing and the sea is raging and the disciples who are experienced fishermen all think they're going to die, is it really just saying that the disciples were having a hard time with spiritual warfare? No, they were literally in the sea. But at the same time, there are spiritual implications of that location that go on. So sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's literal, and often it's both. And only the context will tell us. So here we are in the wilderness. And we talk about the beasts of the wilderness. And again, we have routinely seen that the beasts of the sea, like Leviathan, are used symbolically to speak of spiritual beings. And we've also seen that the, the beasts, the creatures of the wilderness, such as the demonic goats, a few chapters back in Isaiah earlier on, are used to speak of um, demonic beings as well. So I think our first clue is this. God isn't in the business of making oracles to literal animals. 
Notice here that the animals are simply mentioned, and then it talks about the ambassadors riding their riches on the back of donkeys. And yet the oracle is all about the beasts. The beasts are the focus. And then when the oracle comes, the beasts are just mentioned, and then it's all about the ambassadors coming with all their riches and making the alliance, which is the broader context of what's going on. So I think the first clue here is that the fact that there is an oracle directed at beasts suggests that it's more than beasts. And particularly when we know contextually, even within the book of Isaiah, that these creatures have been viewed this way, then I think we should certainly immediately have the expectation that there are spiritual implications here. Now, he talks about the land being of trouble and anguish because of the beasts. The link is clearly there. It's a land of trouble and anguish from which the lioness and the lion come. Now, I don't have any references in Scripture that I'm aware of, though I, I could spend a lot more time looking at it and check every reference, and I haven't had the chance to do that. But I'm suspecting that the lion and the lioness do not represent demonic creatures. They may I don't know, but I don't see, I don't have any evidence that might suggest that's the case. I suspect that because there is a literal Negev desert, a literal wilderness, there are literal animals there. We do know that lions live there during that period of history. So in other words, the wilderness has literal scary creatures. And then there is a reference to the adder. Some versions say viper, and some versions say serpent. It is the most typical word for serpent. And then there is a reference to a flying, fiery serpent. Now, if you were here in chapter 6, you know where I'm going. If you've ever seen the flyer that we use to advertise the Isaiah series, you know where I'm going. Because when we dealt with Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of being in the throne of the temple on the earth at the return of Jesus Christ in the presence of God himself. And there he is, and he sees these creatures singing, holy, holy, holy. And they were seraphim. And seraphim were, as I said at the time, understood in the culture of that day to refer to spiritual beings creatures of another realm that were fiery serpents. And what did they do? They sung, and then with six wings, they had six wings. Two, they covered their lower regions. Two, they covered their face. And the other two, they flew. Flying, fiery serpents. He's referencing seraphim. He's referencing seraphim in a context, in a context that is clearly speaking not of the good, but of the bad. Through a land of trouble and anguish. We're not talking about the seraphim worshipping God and saying, holy, holy, holy. We're talking about the seraphim that are in the wilderness causing trouble and anguish. In other words, that amongst those highly exalted beings who seem to have a special role in protecting the holiness of God, even amongst them, there are fallen ones. One of them I think you know about. He's the one that in Genesis 3 is referred to as the serpent, and the word for serpent there is the first word for serpent here. That the two words used here of serpents, the most common one, and then the one that is used specifically as seraphim, are joined together and brought here. 
I want you to understand this is hugely significant. Isaiah is not just telling us that he's referring to demonic creatures. He's associating Satan from Genesis 3 with the seraphim of Isaiah 6. It's that significant. Isaiah, he did this in chapter 27. In so many places, he is exegeting for us scripture that has gone beforehand, and he's putting the pieces together for us with a little bit of new revelation. And what he's saying here to them is that there is a, there, there is a wilderness in the Gev, there's a literal place, where there are literal lions and lionesses, and therefore it's a place that one should be wary of and one should be fearful of. But also, there is a serpent and the flying serpent. And it is there that you are going. I don't know if these people were literally walking through the desert to take their riches. I don't see that they had a need. And hence, I think that's another reason why this is a reference. You think you're going to the lush, fertile zone by the Nile, but really you're going to the Negev. You think you're going to meet ambassadors from Egypt who will greet you at the border, but really what you're doing is walking through the dangerous wilderness. And you think that you're making a deal with another nation, but really you're making a deal with the devil. It couldn't be clearer, could it? Why an entire oracle to beasts? Because he's telling them, you're making a deal with demons. Now, we have seen this consistently through Isaiah, that there is this parallelism between the rulers on earth and the rulers in the heavenlies. We saw that very clearly in Isaiah 24. The kings are on the earth and the kings are in the heavens. There are the, those who rule on earth, and behind them, there are rulers in the heaven. Going way, way back in Bible history, we told in Deuteronomy 32 that when the tower, tower of Babel happened and God separated the, the world into nations, that he allocated the sons of God, same term that's used in Genesis 6 of the fallen angels, he allotted to them the various nations. It was like God saying, right, you can have your nations. You want to come down to the people of God and corrupt them like you did in Genesis 6? You can do that. You can corrupt your nations. But I'm going to have my nation. And he calls Abraham in the very next chapter to be the one from whom he would bring his own nation, the nation of Israel. And so this parallelism that happens is, it seems to imply that though there are earthly kings who are doing what they think is right, who are doing what they want to do for their own benefit, that are making decisions for themselves, for their nation, that are seeking after things that they want, that really, behind the scenes, there is a puppeteer, or multiple puppeteers, that are doing things to control the various nations. In the book of Daniel, we see specifically that Daniel is told, I think it's in chapter 9, when the archangel Michael comes, by the way, you should look at that passage, the word prince, which literally just means ruler, is used so many times in that passage. And the archangel Michael is the ruler of Israel. He's the prince over Israel. He's the one that God has allotted particular oversight to his nation, Israel. To the other nations, there are other rulers. And we're told that when the archangel Michael came to speak to Daniel concerning God's plans for Israel, that he would have come sooner than he had, but he'd been hindered by the prince, that's the ruler, of Persia. 
spiritual beings battling in the heavenly realms with one being prevented from doing God's bidding by another. Isn't that strange and bizarre to us? And yet, I do not want you to be under the illusion that exactly the same situation isn't happening today. Because Paul in Ephesians tells us that we wage not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. He uses this terminology to speak of spiritual rulers, spiritual leaders who are behind the scenes. I've said this before, I don't mind saying it again. When you see significant regime changes in countries, when you see the Soviet Union splitting into various nations, when you see the former Yugoslavia splitting into various nations, then what you have is changes going on in the demonic realm. I absolutely believe that. See, no reason to think otherwise. Does it mean that when uh, there is an election and a leader changes, there are changes in the spiritual realm? I don't think so. I don't think there's anything to suggest that much. But I do think that these realms are allocated to various creatures and they rule and they reign. What is the point in all of this? When you make a deal with a foreign nation, not just a deal, not just a trade deal, not just a deal to help your people, but a deal to place your trust in them, that there are threats. The threat of, the threat here, sorry, I haven't said this, I should have said it at the beginning. The threat for them, the reason that they're looking to make an alliance with the Egyptians, is that they are still under the yoke of the Assyrians. Ahaz was under the threat of Israel and Syria, so he made a deal with the Assyrians, and the Assyrians wiped out Israel and Syria, and then they came down and took Judah as well. And though they weren't able to take Jerusalem, though they got very close, but for the intervention of God, they have been under the threat and the yoke of the Assyrians since. Why has God allowed that? Because that's the choice that Israel made. That's why he's allowing it. So what they're doing is they're trying to get out of the consequences of the sin they already committed. Like a, a child who has been punished for committing an offence by their parents, and then they commit a second offence to try and get out of the consequences of the first offence. Sin upon sin. And so they are seeking to get free from the Assyrians, which God has placed over them by turning to help for help somewhere else. They're turning to another nation with other gods, and it is clear and definitive statement, our trust is not in you, Yahweh. Our trust is going to be placed in someone else. Guys, we need to see terms, uh, need to see our life in terms that are a lot more black and white than we do. We either trust in God or we trust in Satan. Because every man-made religion, every man-made philosophy, every opportunity that we have to place our trust outside of God is ultimately satanic. Because it is our faith to trust in God, and it is contrary to our faith to not trust in God. It really is that simple. So when, when, we, when we place our trust elsewhere, 
then we are trusting in Satan. It's ironic that uh, somebody who maybe was never saved or certainly seems to have fallen away from the faith got it right many years ago when Bob Dylan sang, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's, it's just clear black and white stuff. You're either trusting in Yahweh or you're trusting in someone or something else. And underneath that something or someone else, there is the realm of the demonic. And if that wasn't clear enough, it becomes abundantly clear in verse 7. Because he began with the beasts of Negev in this section, and he ends here, Egypt's help is worthless. Egypt is in the, in the, Negev is in Egypt, and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. If you were here for Leviathan, Isaiah 27 verse 1, we looked through the biblical passages referring to Satan as Leviathan, and we saw that in many passages there is another name given to Leviathan, also referring to a sea creature, and that name was Rahab. Sadly, most Christians know the name Rahab because of the prostitute that helped the spies at the fall of Jericho. But the term is used far more frequently in its normal terminology, which is that referring to Leviathan. The term literally, as a noun, means big mouth. So when you have a very large sea creature, perhaps as bigger and larger than a whale even back in the day, again, if you've seen Jurassic World, think of that mega thing, mega, mega, Megatron, mega something, um, that jumps out. You're thinking a huge sea creature with a huge mouth. No wonder it was known as Rahab, big mouth. The term as an adjective means arrogant. Because if you have a big mouth and you speak off a lot, you, you shoot from your mouth a lot, then that has a, a connection, obviously, to arrogance. And that's one of the reasons, surely not the only one, but it's one of the reasons that Leviathan is referred to as Rahab. It is a creature with a big mouth, but the one whom Leviathan represents is a big mouth who has a heart of arrogance. And what is Egypt being called? Egypt is being called Leviathan. You cannot have a reference to serpent, fiery serpent, and Rahab slash Leviathan without understanding that God is speaking about Satan. This is an oracle. It is, a, it is something, it is a woe that is isolated and highlighted and the focus is upon it because it is a most serious and somber statement. When you trust in other gods, you trust in other nations, you're trusting in demons and you're trusting in Satan. And so the terminology points them, even at this point in biblical history, it points them to Genesis 3. It points them to Job chapter 40. It points them to, uh, sorry, 38, I think. It points them to these sections of Scripture. It points them back. And what does it say about Rahab? Egypt is not simply called Rahab. She's specifically called in the ESV, Rahab who sits still. Other versions say, Rahab who does nothing. It is outright mockery. It is outright mockery. 
There is this big, you boast and you're arrogant and you speak with your big mouth, but you know what you can do? Absolutely nothing. Again, this harks back to Job 38, where we have Leviathan. And what does God say to Job regarding Leviathan? Can you control him? Can you spear him, harpoon him? Can you put a ring in his nose? Can you snare him? Do you have any control over Leviathan at all? Ah, ah, ah. But what's the implication? The implication is that God can. And Leviathan at the end of the book of Job bookmarks Leviathan at the beginning of the book of Job where Satan, the one behind Leviathan, the one he represents, goes to God and God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? But what Satan is able to do to Job when he requests is only what God allows him to do. God controls Satan, God controls Leviathan. The beginning and at the end of the book of Job. So here, Egypt is called the big mouth who does nothing. Leviathan is, is spoken of as Rahab because the term means big mouth. Egypt boasts. She thinks she's such a mighty nation. She's so great. Pharaoh thinks he's this great king. He's so proud. And what are they going to do when the time comes? Absolutely nothing. They're going to do absolutely nothing. And historically, we know this to be the case. Historically, this was exactly what happened. That when the time, we'll talk more about this next time, but when the time came, there is Assyria threatening Judah. The Egyptians come up. The Assyrians threaten Egyptians. And what do the Egyptians do? They flee. And we're going to see about their fleeing more specifically next time. But they came to nothing. They gave all of their riches away. And they profited nothing. They put all their eggs in one basket. And it came to nothing. Because they trusted in the enemies of God. And they trusted in Satan. For us, when Paul talks about principalities and powers, we do not wage against flesh and blood, we, we wage against principalities and powers. Spiritual warfare is alive and well today. Satan is working against the church. He roams around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Is Peter referencing this passage? It's possible. Lions and lionesses. But the reality is, is that Satan still has a big scary mouth and he still seeks to hurt those whom God allows him to. What is the solution? Is the solution, as many Christian authors did in the 80s, writing books about Satan, sharing stories that are basically stories of demonic activity, scaring Christians and talking about how powerful Satan is, almost like your, his own PR machine? No, 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 no. Our response is this. We trust in Yahweh. We trust in Yahweh. Their sin from the beginning of this passage was clear. These stubborn children are adding sin to their sin because they're carrying out plans, making alliances, and placing their trust elsewhere. We're going to see next time, because we're kind of 
I think we'd, if we did any more, we'd be completely out of time, so I'm rushing. But we're going to see next time that what they do in this whole process is that they need to turn from trusting in them and turn back to God. We're going to see the word turn used three times in the next section. They've turned away from God and they need to turn back and they need to place their trust in him. And that, my friends, is the only solution to the work of Satan in this world. Trust God, place your trust in him, wait upon him, cry out to him, turn to him. He is our God and he is our saviour and we must not trust in anything else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your, uh, your harmonious message from Old to New Testament. Thank you that your word to Judah in the days of Hezekiah is fresh and relevant to us today. May we learn from it, Lord. May we trust in you. May our trust not be in other kings and the rulers behind them. May our trust not be in organizations and institutions. May we not trust in, in anything that we hope might bring us any form of salvation. But may we trust in you, knowing that you control all things and can bring those nations, those institutions, and those people to our aid because we have trusted in you. May we be people of faith, we pray. And may you be glorified through our trust. Amen. Amen.